George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Look, I know you want to get to the podcast. I'm going to keep this short. When it comes to opera, we're the only ones bringing you everything you need to know about the art form, the people, and the stories you know, we every haven't damn done a week. roundup of other podcasts about opera late, lately. Uh, we, know we we love Aria Code, but there are other shows out there. There's like sex, drugs, and rock and roll, or opera, drugs, and rock. Is that what it's called? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, but there are other people out there. So we don't know if, if other people are bringing people the stories they need to know every week. These are other really great yeah. opera podcasts for me to poop on. <laughs> hey, check it out. Five bucks buys an ad on social media. Ten bucks covers our website for a month. Twenty bucks makes a hundred lapel pins. So if you haven't seen our ads on social media, it's because we don't have five bucks. Or maybe five bucks isn't enough to cover our ads on social media or maybe we need to learn how to build the audience for those things look you know? 20 bucks that's enough to l- buy a face mask for our whole team so they don't catch coronavirus we can share the mask yeah that is not gonna work <laughs> yes right. the mask is not even gonna work we're all doomed the olympics are canceled thank mm. you matt cummings look don't think you can give oh yes you can simply review us on apple podcasts share our facebook posts or just retweet okay. us and tell people hey i like this podcast and that guy oliver here he's Most of all, keep listening to America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk Radio Show about opera, period. Live in the Lakeside Studio, WNUR 89.3 FM and HD1 Evanston, Chicago. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this time around by Oliver Camacho and Matt Cummings. All right, tonight, Enigma Chamber Opera is Boston's newest storefront opera company and it hit the ground running earlier this year with a new production of Britain's The Turn of the Screw. Artistic director Kirsten Cairns and tenure Matthew DiBattista join us live in studio. And then, Chalk Talk, we take a look at Opera Philadelphia's upcoming season. It's a doozy. We'll tell you why. Plus, around 9.35 p.m. Central, two-minute drill, where we apparently have to keep talking about Placido Domingo. And, of course, you can call us on air. Get your voice heard. 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. Give us your hot take on the latest opera news stories. 847 847- 866-9687. You can also tweet us at Opera Box Score. Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, cozying up on Mike One over here. Oliver's greatest dream, we all know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'm worried about the Olympics. That's on my mind right now, that they're going to get canceled, that all my beautiful gymnasts are going to have to take off their onesies and... And that we'll just be left without excitement for an entire two-week period during the summer. Don't you think it's a little too soon to make, like, gymnastics jokes? Like, in the light of those allegations in Michigan State? I'm talking about the male gymnasts. Oh, okay. Oh, that makes it much better. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. This just went so downhill very quickly. Uh, Oliver, what percentage likelihood do you think the Olympics are going to be canceled? Mm, 75%. That's a pretty high number. Yeah, I, I, I go big with my bets. So. Matt Cummings, I barely recognized you over here in the studio. It's been a while. I'm glad that you're still here where I left you last about four <laughs> years ago. <laughs> okay, that was a, a loaded compliment. But uh, hey, I'll take it. Let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Thanks for hanging out with us tonight on America's Talk Radio Show about opera. i got a great crew in the house for you. 
Kirsten Cairns' extensive directing work includes theater, opera, and shows for children. She's experienced in working with both students and professionals. She's able to nurture all performers to bring out their best, drawing from her studies in literature, theater, music, and teaching. She's lived in England. She's now in Boston running Enigma Chamber Opera. She joins us live in studio with tenor Matthew DiBattista. Both of you, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having us. Thanks. Wow, what an introduction. You like did so much research about her life. I know, I was impressed. <laughs> I was like, really? Did I do that stuff? <laughs> Apparently so. So, Kirsten, the reason why you're on our show today is because every now and then we come across a review. Um, we read a lot of reviews from different parts of the country to see what's, what's going on. And your company is, it's brand spanking new, right? Enigma Chamber Opera? Yeah, yeah. And you get this glowing review from the Boston Globe's Zoe Madonna, who, uh, she's like one of my favorite critics to read as far as like, you know, somebody who seems to understand music and goes to things that I'm interested in. She's really, she's great. She covers the early music scene, which, you know, is, is my beat. Uh, so I was just surprised that a brand new storefront company would get such uh, a great review in their inaugural production. Uh, can you tell us how you paid her or? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was a brown envelope with unnumbered bills. No, um, no, you're right. It was, we were thrilled to get such a terrific review. Um, if I can be conceited for a moment, I wasn't surprised that we got a great review, but I was surprised that we got reviewed at all. And that's the thing is, you know, when you're starting out, as you're saying, getting press to come and see your shows when you're a new company on the scene is not easy. But the um, ace I had up my sleeve is the cast that I had in the show. Um, very experienced, talented, well-known singers who are particularly sort of favorites in Boston. And so I knew that if I, well, I hoped that if I let the Globe know that this was the cast that they would bite and would say, oh, we have to come and see this because how does a new company have this caliber of cast? And sure enough, uh, that was what tempted Zoe, I believe. That's what tempted her to come along and see the show. So your, your first production was Britain's The Turn of the Screw. Um, how do you feel about the scene of storefront opera in Boston and what niche does necessarily doing Britain fill? Well... The, the storefront thing is a, an interesting one because um, it can mean so many different things as to what we count as being a storefront company. And there are a lot of smaller companies in Boston and groups that give opportunities for young singers. Of course, there's a lot of music schools in Boston, so it's great to have places where young singers can get experience performing. Um, that's not what we're trying to do with Enigma. Um, we are an emerging company, but we're not emerging artists in the company. All the designers, singers, myself as director, conductors are, are generally speaking, people with a lot of experience. Um, so we weren't thinking particularly about trying to fill a storefront niche. It was more about, uh, for me, wanting to put on a particular show with a particular group of people uh, who would enjoy working together and have a good time. So the choice of the Britain was because it was a piece that was exciting to me to do. Because you have a Scottish accent. 
Because <laughs> I'm a Brit and I like Brit things. Uh, and what could be more British? That's and right. Boy, and then boys being touched. <laughs> and there we are again. Oliver, it's been great having you on the show. Thank you so much. Uh, no, I mean, I am a big fan of Britain, but actually it was more to do with an interpretation of the show that I had been wanting to do since I first staged Turn of the Screw more than a decade ago. I had another idea come into my head. Hey, next time I do this show, I'm going to do it this what, what way. Was, what was the idea? I, I've, I've directed the show myself here in, in Chicago's storefront community. What, what was the idea? What, what was so compelling to you this time around? Uh, Matt, you want to explain the idea? No, you give the explanation because you explain it better than I do. So to try and put it really briefly, the question in Turn of the Screw is always, are the ghosts real or are they only in the governess's head? Is she imagining that these children are haunted and therefore she is the threat to them or are they actually haunted? And what I had started thinking about all those years ago was, what if the whole thing is in her head? Not just the ghosts, but the children, the housekeeper, the house itself. Um, so, uh, yeah, I started exploring that idea. And, and what if the piece, therefore, becomes about mental health? This is a woman who doesn't leave her little tiny studio apartment. And uh, she creates this world for herself where she imagines a handsome man who invites her to go and take care of these children and, and it begins as this wonderful flight of fantasy and daydream but then it becomes twisted and starts to be something that torments and haunts her it's opera box score on wnur 89.3 fm talking with enigma chamber opera artistic director kirsten cairns along with tenor matthew d batista is storefront opera the term that you use in boston for the the scale of the work that you're doing there i feel like that's a very chicago word and i don't want to put words into your mouth yes we've coined that word here in chicago it, it you definitely have uh in in fact we um full um transparency looked up the word uh, because, <laughs> because i've heard it recently but we do not use that in Boston, um, and it might be you know a word that the the kids are using these days. But uh, you, so so Matt, in other words, you, right? We exactly. Youths over here, yeah, the young guy on the left. Um, but uh, yeah, we, I don't think Enigma falls into that category, as as Kirsten was saying before. I mean, the idea here is just to, um, you know, put a group of terrific performers, designers, artists together and uh, be nimble enough to take a show anywhere and put it up in a short amount of time uh, with, with uh, you know, and, and have a great time at the same time. I guess that asked, begs the question, that, like, what was the venue? And, um, you know, it sounds like you know all of the, your cast very well, that maybe they're your friends. Um, you, maybe you know the rest of the Boston singing community. And can you talk about how you assemble this team and, uh, you know, why it would bring the attention to uh, the Boston Globe so early in your initiatives? Well, first of all, I want to take complete responsibility and all the credit for <laughs> Enigma happening at all um, because it, it all started because Kirsten uh, and I sat and had coffee one time when she was uh, in visiting from Scotland and we were talking about our favorite operas and she had always wanted to do this new production of it, this new concept, and I had always wanted to do Peter Quint because Miles was the very first opera role I ever performed at 11 years old, the, the boy soprano role. So I've been dying to do this. And then at one point we were just like, we should just 
we should just do this. And then we started spit, uh, spitballing about, you know, who could we have do these roles? And we, we kind of tossed ideas back and forth for a couple of years, really. And then Kirsten was like, you know what? Let's just do this. And so we used the, um, the, the new Black Box Theater uh, over at New England Conservatory, which is a great uh, black box space, but it's almost a proscenium theater, uh, a, a small venue, about 250 seats. So it was very intimate and had our chamber orchestra together, and it, you know, the rest is history. Can you tell us a little bit more about where you see Enigma fitting within the whole the greater music scene in Boston? Don't call it storefront. I <laughs> yeah, hate that word over there. <laughs> Although, if there was a shop that wanted to let us do a show in there, I would be so up for that. Mm. Um, yeah, we, it's, it's interesting because Enigma is based in Boston mostly because I lived there for a long time and the majority of my friends who work in the opera field are Bostonians because I was a student there and then I taught there at Boston Conservatory um, and that's where I have the most connections. But I don't particularly intend Enigma to be an opera company that only performs in Boston. Uh, like I say, the goal, the original goal was to do a particular show, as Matt mentioned, that we talked about this and were like, hey, let's try and do it. And then when I started to think about the need to create a company to do that, I started to think about what I would want from a company and what I felt my friends would want. And the primary goal is to do things that we all have a really good time doing. So roles that people have always wanted to play, um, atmosphere within the rehearsal room where we're all pulling together, we're all friends, we're all experienced, we can bounce ideas off, it can be that wonderful organic process, Not none of the drama that you often get in a rehearsal room. Um, and so what I'm trying to do, more than thinking necessarily about an artistic niche in terms of the productions that we do, it's more about the way that we satisfy ourselves artistically in creating these works. And yes, we're based in Boston, and the majority of our performances probably will be there, but because we're small and flexible and because we're all experienced and can work very quickly, we could, for example, I could say next year, we're going to do a show in Glasgow and bring everyone over for two weeks, rehearse, put it on, and we're done. Um, so, yeah, we, we hope to be pretty flexible and movable and, yeah. Well, you talked to us earlier about um, this cast that uh, all have careers outside of Boston and how your rehearsal process for Screw was, what, 11 days? Is that what you said? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's pretty insane. So, um, Especially for an opera like that. Yeah. It's totally insane. Um, I guess that then just relies on your cast being really committed to the project and be willing to work uh, intensely. Yes, and being well prepared, of course, because they understand the level of preparedness that is required. Um, and exactly as you say, being prepared to work intensely. And I would say, and you know, Matt can, can comment on this, but I would say it's also being prepared to trust me that we can do it in that time. So I think if a director says to you, we're going to get this up in that shorter space of time and it's going to be amazing, you have to have a certain level of trust that you believe that the director can make that happen and that you're not all going to be flailing about. Is, would you say that's true, Matt? Absolutely. And, and, I did uh, some work on um, Britain's Prodigal Son with uh, Kirsten some years ago with uh, now defunct company Intermezzo Opera, and um, I just remember how completely buttoned up she was through the whole process. So we weren't just creating art, but we were doing it at a rapid pace, and 
uh, I just wasn't concerned at all about getting this project done because Kirsten is down to the minute. Well, it sounds like you don't necessarily want to identify with being a Boston-based company, but can you tell us briefly about what the scene is like in Boston for our audience that might want to go to Boston and check out some kind of opera, be it on the high level or at the storefront, as we call it, level here in Chicago? So Kirsten and I were talking about this recently. One of the things that bugs the both of us more than anything is when people call say that Boston's not an opera town. Um, that gets tossed around. It's all an the oratorio time. town. It's an or- right or whatever or you know it, it just makes me crazy because there is so much opera and there always has been so much opera going on. Yes, it's a very academic town, and so there are a lot of uh, musicians coming out of academia and doing very scholarly work uh, with regards to early music and modern music, et cetera, et cetera. And we know that sometimes that opera doesn't always fall into that idea of, you know, really scholarly work, which is, again, ridiculous. But um, Boston has uh, one big company, Boston Lyric Opera, is is the main uh, opera company in town. Odyssey Opera is now, um, has taken the second place spot after Opera Boston uh, uh, went down some years ago and uh, is filling a different niche of uh, sometimes grand opera, sometimes modern opera, things that aren't normally done um, and doing it on a very large scale. And then there are any number of uh, smaller companies in town uh, doing lots of terrific work with local singers and emerging artists, etc. Yeah, there, there's a lot of great opera in Boston. And don't get me wrong, we would be proud to be thought of as a Boston opera company. But for sure, we're not trying to compete with all the very talented groups that are already there. We're just trying to do our own thing and have a good time with it. What's 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 next for for the for the company? What's what's the next dream project or the next actual project? Well, so a few questions about that in my mind. Um, there are various things I'd like to do. That hopefully next spring we'll be going to Bermuda to uh, perform our production of Turn of the Screw at the Bermuda Arts Festival. And before you even ask, I would be happy to assist. Thank you very much. You. I'll, I'll bear that in mind. Uh, yeah, so we're, we're, the Bermuda Arts Festival folks have never brought in an opera before, and I met with them earlier this spring, and we were chatting about it, and so I'm hoping that's going to happen. Um, there may be other places this production, Turn of the Screw, may go on the road, go to some other places. As far as a next production goes, there's a few works that I'm interested in doing. Uh, we may do a even smaller-scale show late this summer, um, maybe just like a two-people show that we'll throw up in, believe it or not, a four-day rehearsal schedule, uh, and that would be at the end of August. But I'm, there's a lot of ideas out there of things I'd like to do. I'm slightly like you, concerned about, for example, the Olympics being cancelled. I'm slightly waiting to see how things go, whether I want to be putting the money into trying to put on a show if nobody's going out to set foot in theatres because they're all too afraid. So I'm kind of going to see how it goes. But I think we may do a show late summer and then a bigger project again next year, as well as taking our turn of the screw on the road. I just want to say, I was at an opera on um, Friday night, and the person sitting in the aisle across from me spent maybe 10 solid minutes coughing. And Ugh. everybody started to get unnerved. I mean, obviously it was disruptive to the show, but I could tell everybody like start to like their shoulders sort of collapsed, and they started to shrink oh. away from her. So, well, and, you know, opera singers spit everywhere, so you definitely mm. don't want to be in the splash zone. In the front <laughs> row. I mean. 
Well, there's a, uh, a theater in Venice, I, I want to say. The Fenice, yeah, that's doing two concerts. Um, and there's gonna, they're not op- open to the public, but they're going to transmit them to YouTube so that they could still put on their work. But I guess nobody's paying for tickets, so I don't know how they're going to get make them. I guess it's the Italian government is paying for it, right? Yeah. Could you still wear like a mask if you were an instrumentalist? And I mean, not if you're playing the trombone, obviously. Yeah. But if you're in the string section, maybe you have to wear a mask. Surgeon General is telling everyone to stop buying masks. <laughs> this is your, your wait to stop buying masks. Yeah, because yeah. they're taking them away from people who actually need them. Yeah. So I guess my next show is going to be Unbalo in Mascara. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, thank you both so much for hanging out with us tonight on the show. We're going to put some links to all your work on our website, operaboxscore.com. Thanks for having us. It's been fun. Terrific. Thanks, guys. Opera Philadelphia's upcoming season has been revealed. And as always, there's a couple of surprises out there. That's next. It's America's Talk Radio Show about opera, WNUR 89.3 FM and HD1, Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Support for Opera Box Score is provided in part by Encoda. Endorsed by Sir Simon Rattle and Joyce D. Donato, Encoda is like a Spotify of scores. It's like, the, it's like the Netflix for new music. It's like the Hulu of <laughs> notes. <laughs> Encoda is a beautiful app for streaming the world's largest digital library of sheet music on subscription. They got your novellos. They got your recordings. They got your Baron Rides. They got your Mm. Calmuses, though. Do you want to have Calmus at your fingertips? (laughs) I don't think so. I think that's cleared up by now. Encoda has aggregated a hundred catalogs from your favorite publishers. That's thousands of titles, millions of pages of music at your fingertips. Hopefully you don't get a paper cut, but you won't because it's digital. Yeah, you'll, yeah, you'll get a million get a, little paper cuts. You'll get a you know? tablet cut instead. <laughs> Practice, play, and perform off your phone, laptop, tablet, even your phablet. Wait, wait, what's that? Okay. That's your uh, phone tablet. You know those really big phones that only basketball players can hold? You know? Basically, you can play it on your smart toilet. Yes. The Encoda. The Encoda app makes editing and sharing sheet music stress-free and easy. Search content, browse curated playlists, and discover new music by using unique smart technology. That's actually a really good idea. Like, what if you can have music on your refrigerator, those smart refrigerators? <laughs> like, so, like, as you're, like, standing there, like, trying to decide what you could be practicing. You Where know? is my milk? <laughs> this isn't for you, Oliver, because you don't do smart. Wherever you are, utilize all of Encoda's features and keep your entire library of scores in one place. Download Encoda from your app store today for free trial. That's N-K-O-D-A. And you could also go to Encoda.com to learn more. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. Hey, what's going on, America? It's America's talk radio show about opera. It's your talk radio show about opera. George Cedarquist with you tonight, along with Oliver Camacho. And after a long absence, so glad to have him back in the Lakeside Studio, Matt Cummings. Were we always calling it the Lakeside Studio? Have I just not been paying attention? I stole that from someone else at WNUR, and I just loved it. I mean, it's not, it's not incorrect. We are right... Right by the lake. We are right by Lake Michigan. Lake. And I don't know, like, here we are in Chicago, I, I, Evanston technically, but I, I felt like that really defined who we are. I, this is we're, not about we're lake people. We are lake people. We and are this, definitely this lake people. this podcast is, is uh, the lake effect. I, That's why we're so great. I, I, was ta- I was trying to convince my seven-year-old to, to come and see an opera with me next week. 
And she's she's like, there's no way that I'm going to go to the opera. And I was like, oh, okay, well, your, why, why your is Your daughter that? is afraid of going to public spaces now? No, it's not public spaces. She said, I'm not going to go to the opera be- for two reasons. First of all, it's in a language that I don't speak. And second of all, there's no popcorn. You should take her to an HD broadcast. Well, that was that was kind of what I was thinking. Okay. Well. But I don't know which one it would be. I mean, it would have to be 90 minutes or less, probably. Because then she has, she has to go. It's like one-third of one act of Agrippina. <laughs> well, I was going to say, because like, then she has to go potty. But then I realized that everybody sitting in the movie theater probably has to go potty after 90 minutes. So, you know. It's... Well, maybe that's a future segment of like what opera to take your children to that's within potty uh, time spans. The season at Opera Philadelphia features a world premiere chamber opera by three-time Grammy-winning composer and Philadelphia Jennifer Higdon, a major role debut for renowned soprano Sondra Radvanovsky in a new production of Verdi's Macbeth, and the company debut of legendary bass baritone Sir Willard White in Hentz's El Cimarron, plus a festival residency by superstar tenor Lawrence Brownlee. He was just in Chicago last weekend. And the company and title role debut of soprano Anna Maria Martinez Buccini's Tosca. Gentlemen, this announcement every year, this is just such a huge announcement. I mean, this company continues to not steal the spotlight, but like, own the spotlight. If you own it, you can't steal it. Well, they're just doing interesting things. And let's just put the festival off to one side and talk about that really quickly. So they always start their season, or they have been starting their season now with what they call the O Festival. And you get three operas running concurrently, as well as a recital series at um, AVA, which is uh, American Vocal Arts Academy. Is that what you call it? Yes. Uh, Academy of Vocal Arts. Academy of Vocal Arts. And Curtis Institute, so two institutions that have some of the highest level singing uh, people coming out of those programs, you know, usually go on to have actual careers. Uh, And they also have their um, kind of fringe series called Late Night Snacks, which um, in previous versions of it had like had Stephanie Blythe do drag. And last year I saw Anthony Roth Costanza do like a show of um, like drag well it was a lot uh he sang mozart and gershwin and all sorts of stuff like stuff that you wouldn't expect him to sing yeah. and yeah. tap dance a little bit um but <laughs> the three main things that are happening are these operas and in the um new work uh category is higdon jennifer higdon who has a chicago connection she was composer in residence wasn't she, she or, was, yes at here at chicago symphony orchestra uh, with a librettist who also has a Chicago connection named Jerry Dye. And another Chicago connection, uh, Meredith Arwady, uh, contralto, is in the cast, who is an alumnus of the Ryan Opera Center. And this work will be performed at the Perlman Theater at the Kimmel Center. And apparently there's some kind of like choose-your-own-adventure type ending where they're like... It's like the movie Clue. There's like three but different form. Really? Is that what it's like? Okay. It's not exactly choose your own adventure. Okay. Clue is very different from that. What was that? Um, Clue had three endings. Do not come for me. Clue had Tim Curry. <laughs> yeah. Also would be good in an opera. I would love to see Tim Curry in an opera. And then in the uh, new-ish but not brand new opera category, uh, small chamber style is going to be this Hensa show, El Cimarron, which is a story about an escaped slave. Uh, and it's a monodrama featuring Willard White. Sir Willard Sir White. Willard White, yes. Um, and that's going to be uh, at the... Oh, I forget what this venue is called, but um, 
It's a smaller venue. It's a the bar. It's at the Barnes, the Barnes Foundation, Foundation. Yeah, for three performances. I mean, how badass is that, Sir Willard White? I have his Elijah. Recording. I uh, he is on my list of people I would love to meet. Okay, I would love to hear his. Well, voice. then maybe you should come with me to O Festival next year. Well, maybe the lovely people at Opera Phila <laughs> should, maybe. should fly. fly. How about you and Matt go this year? I mean, you and um, Tobias went last time. Or Who? Ashley, yeah. <laughs> and yes then, sorry yes, and then right. taking sort of the space as like the prestigious centerpiece show uh which last year was love of three oranges is going to be the role debut of um sandra radvanovsky in macbeth with uh baritone roberto frontali as macbeth uh, and that actually she will has, not be playing macbeth she no can. no she'll be playing lady macbeth yes uh, and that will be at the academy music and with a new production directed by a friend of the show Paul Curran. Paul Curran, yeah, so wow. I wanted to, this. to talk to Matt here about um, what it means for a singer who has cultivated like this kind of bel canto technique to move into a role like Lady Macbeth. Yeah, so that's an interesting thing about Verdi is that we look back at him as being totally separate from the bel canto tradition because of where his career went. You know, by the time you get to Otello and Falstaff, we're pretty far from... Uh, the daughter of the regiment. Mm -hmm. But actually, the first singer who ever played Lady Macbeth was known for her bel canto uh, performances in roles like Anna Bolena and Semiramide. And so... Queens. Those those big old larger-than-life queen type. Uh, And the role definitely has a reputation as being kind of a voice wrecker. Mm -hmm. uh, Because while Verdi grows out of this bel canto tradition, there's coloratura, there's high notes, there's low notes... Uh, it it approaches it in a much angular and more much more angular and forceful way yeah. than you would really expect to hear from like yeah. Bellini or Donizetti. Uh, and Lady Macbeth is a particular test for a singer. I'd say it goes up there with like Odabella in Attila and uh, Abigail in Nabucco as as these roles that can be voice killers if you don't do it completely uh, completely easily uh, and complete with with solid technique and. Uh, a lot of that comes from this letter that Verdi wrote the original, the originator of the role, uh, who, wh- where he said that her voice has to be uh, harsh and stifled and dark and that she shouldn't be afraid to be ugly and evil. Mm. Uh, and that has definitely been interpreted to, to mean that you can make any kind of sound in the role of Lady <laughs> Macbeth and it's exactly what the composer wanted. Yeah. Uh, but it's definitely important to keep in mind who, you know, who he was talking to when yeah. he wrote that letter. This is a... a a woman that he thought was too beautiful for the part was not the singing actress who was his first choice uh, and someone who was not used to uh, putting the kind of dramatic thrust behind her singing that we expect from opera singers nowadays. Uh, and then when you take into effect that he – he uh, Macbeth was orig- originally written in 1847 for uh, for this singer. Uh, and then in 1865 when it premiered in Paris, he totally revised the opera and turned the this coloratura showpiece in Act Two into a much more dramatic, declamatory, spooky aria that just calls for a, a more a voice with a lot more thrust altogether. Uh, and not many people on the scene can sing with more thrust than Sandra Radvanovsky. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that it, th- this promises to be a, a, a sought after ticket to hear her sing everything from low C's and chest voice to high D flats in the most fine pianissimo you can muster do you want to give our audience a little taste of that yeah so this is uh the i i've picked a selection from her entrance aria 
Uh, and this is my personal favorite for those of you who've listened to the show before, Lady Macbeth, uh, who is Shirley Verrett. The, uh, the quality on that audio is not great because it's a, it's from a live recording of her in, in, I believe it was Rome. This was one of the first performances that really made her a star, was yeah. this kind of dramatic, intense, uh, unsympathetic, but really powerful performing uh, performance of right. Lady Macbeth. And I feel like it's been said before in a much more eloquent way, but Shakespeare brings out this quality in Verdi where he feels like, oh, this is a libretto. I mean, this is a story that people are going to know and they already have ideas about a character. So it's harder, almost like if you come up with an opera like Nabucco, it's like, yeah, these are like historical figures, like whatever. So, but when it's, it's so, historical ish. <laughs> yeah. But when you have a character like Lady Macbeth, where it's like, you know, great actresses have portrayed this character like on the stage, like how does he compete? And he has to write music that just really is dramatic, for lack of a better word, you know? And I think that presents its own unique challenge to singers who take on this role. Just the idea of the drama, that the the arc of this character, you know? Yes, absolutely. And it's the, the kind of singer who really tends to make a, a strong mark in this role is someone who's not afraid to be a little bit temperamental, not afraid to really go for... Go for broke and, and make it big. You know, your your Maria Callas's, your Leonie Reason X, your Shirley Verrett's, your Firenze Cosotos. Uh, you know, this is really something that is going to be uh, more intense and, and potentially ugly and bold, like Verdi said, that, than, than you would get from Sandra before. Well, we're super excited to hear that. Hopefully we'll get invited again. And just some quick hits on the rest of their season. They're doing the Stravinsky Oedipus Rex, which has a very diverse cast featuring William Burden, Rihanna Thalwell, yeah. uh, Willard White again, and Sir William White and Willard White and uh, Mark S. Doss. And uh, the other show in their season is, as we said earlier, Anna Marie Martinez making her role debut and her Upper Philadelphia company debut as Tosca with Quinn Kelsey as Scarpia and uh, Piero Preti, who I just heard last month singing um, Turidu in Cavalier uh, Rusticana, and he's great. So that is opera. Philadelphia. Any more you want to add to that, George? It's a great. It's a great lineup. Yeah, I wish I could see the Paul Kern production. I that would be really spectacular. Of um, of Macbeth. 
The other directors aren't listed. Uh, sorry, I mean the director for Tosca is listed, who I don't know. The director for Oedipus Rex is not listed. It's that not would, on the it's, website? No, yeah, that would be great to, to figure out. Maybe I'll, sure? maybe I'll write to... Yeah, maybe unless I'm missing something, but I, I maybe I'll just write to them. It, it's going to be a concert performance, it says, in, in, and paired with the, the Ballet Lenos. Oh, that's right. Okay, I, so. that, would be, that would be why there's no director. I wonder well, if there's going to be dancing. Probably yeah, not. who's the choreographer? If they're, maybe they're just doing the ballet music and not p- rolling out Marley on the concert hall. Who knows? It's been done. I've seen stuff like that done before, but you know. All right. Look, pay attention, everybody. The Domingo nonsense is going to get even more complicated. That's next. Only on Opera Vox Score. It's on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD1, Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Listed as a must-listen podcast for opera by Playbill, week after week, Opera Box Score is expanding its reach, discussing news of the business, talking to opera's most important players, and infotaining the newcomers and longtime fans alike. If you're new to the podcast, look back in our archives to find interviews with the likes of Richard Tucker Award Wait, 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 wait. Let's have some fun with this. Oliver, can you name the Richard Tucker Award winners we've interviewed? Okay, so we've had um, Eileen Perez... Uh, that's one. He's uh, break- Tamara Wilson. He's, Two. He's breaking a sweat here. Um, did Matthew Ponzani win the Richard Tucker Award? We can say he did for the, for the purposes <laughs> okay. of this ad. And, and we know Richard Willis Sorensen was in one of those concerts, wasn't she? In the Richard Tucker Gala concert? I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. <laughs> okay. What about librettists? Okay, librettists. We've had Royce Fabric. Fabric. Okay. Love him. Love uh, Royce Mark, Fabric. Mark Campbell. The hardest working man in showbiz. Yeah. Uh, stage directors. Kirsten Harms, Paul Curran. Kirsten Harms is a stage director? Yeah. I thought she was the intendantin. And stage director. Okay. Uh, Paul Curran, um, James Dara, uh, your friend Jennifer Williams. Jennifer Williams. Greg the- Eldridge. Jeez, yeah. Oliver, you're okay. on fire. Does George count? <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. What about countertenors? <laughs> Access the complete archives by adding Opera Box Score to your podcast favorites or stream from Opera Box Score's page on SoundCloud. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. Placido Domingo has gone head-to-head with the Union, the American Guild of Musical Artists. It's complicated. We're going to break that one down for you in just one minute. According to the Detroit Free Press, the University of Michigan knew about David Daniels' sexual misconduct when he was hired in 2015. The report out of Detroit describes how various professors raised concerns during the hiring of Daniels despite his well-known sexual misconduct towards male students. In what will probably be an ongoing story, tenor and arts business blogger Zach Finkelstein, friend of the show, warns of the collapse of the classical singer economy due to the force majeure clause in many opera companies and other presenter contracts. You can read about his post at middleclassartists.com. In an interview with The Spectator magazine, Royal Opera House music director Antonio Papano said, quote, In England, I've observed that despite all our talk of wanting to bring in younger audiences, opera is something that you come to later. Younger people tend to be restless. We're asking them to sit sometimes for five hours on end. I'm comfortable with classical music in general, that you can come to it later in life. Out of over a thousand contestants competing at the district, regional, and national levels, judges named the following as winners of the 2020 Metropolitan Opera National Council auditions. Mezzo-soprano Gabrielle 
Batang, baritone Blake Denson, tenor Jonah Hoskins, and sopranos Alexandria Shiner and Denise Belez, $20,000 each. After 14 years presiding over the podium for the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra, music director Marin Alsop is stepping down at the end of her contract in August 2021. That came just two days after BSL wrote out a six-year plan designed to restore the orchestra to fiscal solvency. Traverse City, Michigan, okay, it's already got an opera. It's got, it does now. It's getting this opera company starting this summer that's going to go along with his symphony orchestra and, of course, the famous film festival founded by Michael Moore. Here's yet another reason never to click on an article from Slip Disc. Virtuo pianist Yuja Wang has defended herself in an emotional response to a blog post which criticized her for wearing sunglasses at a performance in Vancouver. I'd read the rest of this, but I'd probably go crazy. On the disabled list, American baritone Eric Owens is out as Wotan and Wagner's ring cycle at Lyric Opera of Chicago due to health issues. Season of cancellations for Marius Kvitschen continues, this time allowing for the baritone Luca Micheletti's company debut as Rodrigo and Verdi's Don Carlo at the Royal Opera House. That's in June. And on this day, March 2nd, we celebrate the 80th birthday of English bass Robert Lloyd, the 82nd birthday of American baritone Simon Estes, also the birthday anniversaries of three composers, Bedrick Schmetna in 1824, Kurt Weill in 1900, and Mark Blitstein in 1905. And 1631, the first performance of Stefano Landi's Il Santlesio in Rome. That is your two-minute drill. Opera class. Sports radio crass. This is Opera Box Score. That was Robert Lloyd in the Grand Inquisitor scene live, obviously, uh, from Don Carlo. I love Robert Lloyd. He's not Sir. He has a CBE, but he's not a Sir Robert no, Lloyd. No, that yeah. doesn't count. You, yeah. have to be a, okay. you have to be a level above that to get a Sir or okay. a Dean. Thanks for hanging out with us tonight on Opera Box Score. WNUR 89.3 FM. Oliver, Matt, let us, uh, let's get right to the, the biz here with Domingo. Yeah, let's see we've if... we uh, so much to talk about. <laughs> Ashley Hargrave joining us on uh, the phone. Hey, guys. How we doing? Well, we're confused. Okay. So, Ashley, I'm so glad you called because I need you to break down this timeline for us. Well, we were going to try to read it ourselves, but there was no way it was going to fit into a two-minute drill. It was going to be more like an eight-minute drill. So, <laughs> <laughs> A generations-long drill. Yes. Let me take my phone off speaker. Okay. All right. Okay. So, here we go. Um, oh, man. Yeah. Jesus be a man who does not retract an apology. That's all I'm asking for at this point. <laughs> so here's what we've got. Uh, we start on Monday, February 24th. Domingo publishes a statement Monday night, hours before Agna was to announce the findings of their misconduct investigation. He says, and I quote, I have taken time to reflect on allegations that colleagues of mine have made against me. I respect that these women finally felt comfortable enough to speak out. 
and I want them to know that I am truly sorry for the hurt that I caused them. I accept full responsibility for my actions. I have grown from this experience. I understand now that some women may have feared expressing themselves honestly because of a concern that their careers would be adversely affected if they did so. While that was never my intention, no one should ever be made to feel that way. Oh, that was nice, Domingo. Wasn't so gallant. Hours later, here we go. <laughs> New York Times begins to report that Agma was in talks with Domingo to pay a fine in exchange for a confidentiality investigation. And I quote from that article, but the deal they were working on, which called for the union to limit its public statements about the inquiry and for Mr. Domingo to pay the union a half a million dollars, fell apart after the details of the investigation were leaked overnight. Also Tuesday, same day, again hours later, Agma responds almost immediately with a clarification that while there was indeed a fine, it was to pay for legal fees, training, and preventative initiatives, not for silence. And I quote from that statement, regardless of the fine imposed, AGMA was never planning to publicly release the specific details of its internal investigation, as the union had assured witnesses of confidentiality. Any suggestion that the union was being paid to withhold this information is patently false. Okay. Okay. So that, I just want to say right now, like it, it didn't occur to me really until today, and until you outlined it, that that information about the five hundred thousand dollar deal was actually a leak. Exactly. Yeah. And and so what happens is basically, you know, Domingo comes out. He says, you know, he says this thing that appears to be contrite, and and I am sorry for the way that I made people feel, and it's right on the heels of people finding out that. Agma was going to quote unquote release these findings, but then it turns out that Agma may or may not have been in talks with Domingo's representation for some sort of a fine in exchange for some form of their silence or at the very least a, a, a lightened statement. So that's where we are, and that's only in about a 36 hour period that that stuff comes out about a week ago from now. Uh, cut to Wednesday of last week, February 26th. Upon hearing Domingo's apology, his home country cancels its role in Luisa Fernanda in Spain's Teatro de las Arzuelas that was slated for May. Spanish Cultural Minister Jose Manuel Rodriguez says, Until now, the situation was different. There was a presumption of innocence. But since the moment he said what happened did indeed happen, and have given that this is a situation with serious events that affect many women, we have decided that it wasn't appropriate to keep his presence, and we informed him. Uh, and this line is interesting. I think it's more of a duty than a gesture of solidarity. Hmm. So that happened Wednesday. Cut to Thursday when our boy Placido decides to unapologize on what platform? Facebook. <laughs> All right. So he says, and I quote again, but I know what I have not done, and I'll deny it again. I have never behaved aggressively towards anyone, and I have never done anything to obstruct or hurt anyone's career in any way. Complete reversal of two and a half days before. Uh, on the contrary, I have devoted much of my half century in the world of opera, supporting the industry and promoting the careers of countless singers. He also, in, in some subsequent things, claims that he is the one who withdrew from Madrid's Teatro Real's Traviata, despite their public statement that Teatro Real reaffirms its policy of zero tolerance towards harassment and abuse of any nature. It's continuing solidarity with the victims. So in terms of who pulled out of the Traviata, who broke up with whom, both, it could, it could be, it could go either way. So that's only four days of activity. Then we cut to today. The plot thickens 
so Sam Schultz, who is the fifth vice president of AGMA, resigns from the organization and confirms in his resignation letter that he was the leak. He had provided the details of AGMA's Domingo investigation to reporter Jocelyn Gecker of the Associated Press. So he goes and he resigns. Now, the thing that makes this even more interesting is that Sam Schultz is embroiled in some uh, some misconduct investigations of his own. Meaning he was the recipient of some uh, some 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 poor behavior because he's the guy at the center of the David Daniels investigation. And in fact, he ran for a position in AGMA so that he could help and protect musicians and combat this type of behavior. And after what happened with the process of AGMA and Domingo's representation and this $500,000, whether it's a fine, whether it's an agreement, whatever it was, Sam had had enough. He was done, and he decided to resign effective this morning. So that's where we are. I don't want to say it's the end of the story because I feel like we're going to get something in, you know, 8 to 16 hours. Well, it just goes to show that uh, people who stuck by Domingo, um, they now have egg on their face because uh, now it's going to be so complicated to disentangle yourself, you know, and Domingo's going to say, oh, I actually decided to quit that job. They didn't ask me to leave, you know. Yeah, I just for the record, I never stuck by Domingo from day one. I've, I've always I've always been against him and against everything he stands for and, and against this whole mess that it is. Mess is a good word for it. I mean, and all, all one has to do is go and actually, I don't want to drive traffic to this, but I also kind of want you to know what's out there, uh, is if you go to Placido Domingo's Facebook page where he put out this public statement, I believe there's one in Spanish and one in English, and, and looking at the supportive comments that come beneath it. I know the you know golden rule of surviving internet is don't read the comments, but check out some of the comments there. There's so many people that are you know supporting him and saying, I know you're innocent, we stick by you, and it's you know, I, I didn't dig too deeply into kind of where those people are coming from or who they are, whether they're musicians or fans or whatever. But, you know, this has really divided a lot of folks. I did think it was really poignant that the first non-U.S. house to really take, like, a public stand that made, you know, national news bylines was his home country. The Spanish history of foreign culture was like, nope, nope, you, you already just said what you said happened, happened. This is an act of, of duty. So we need to... We need to revoke this from you. So I thought the fact that it was from his own people was really poignant. Well, it did. I, I, I mean, you know, for his own backyard to say, look, we, we've had enough. When so many other European opera houses were, were behind him and saying like, oh, that's just – it's of his generation or that's of his culture, which resulted like the biggest BS excuses I've, I've ever heard. I mean the whole thing has been handled so poorly. It really reminds me of the recent story of the Houston Astros who were stealing signs. <laughs> and the way that the Astro organization dealt with that crisis and their PR was so muddled and so disgraceful. And it feels like the Astros and Domingo are like coming out of the same PR firms and they don't know how to deal with this at all. Which is like tell the truth quickly, transparently, and promptly – and then let the chips fall where they may. Ashley, I have two questions for you. I'll ask one at a time. Uh, the, fir- the first, because I know that you wanted to be on this episode last week when everything had not even happened yet, when you wanted to react to Agma's uh, statement. Do you still feel the same way, or do you have, have you come to kind of like how you feel about the whole thing with your union at this point? You know, that's a great question. I've, I've been trying to go back and forth on this. There's a really great piece um, on NPR right now about Sam Schultz and this resignation. And, 
you know, Sam feels so passionately about survivors' rights, being that he is one himself. And so I, I really admire him doing this thing that is, is, is pretty brave, you know, and saying, you know, no, I can't be a part of this anymore. But at the same time, if this was, in fact, a way for, for them to protect the anonymity of some of these people coming forward, Sam's resignation and being this leak kind of blows up that possibility where everything's going to be a little bit more public. And, you know, anybody who's watched enough episodes of any procedural crime drama <laughs> or has dealt with crimes in real life knows that there are a lot of victims that are so afraid to come forward either because they just don't want to relive the trauma or because they're afraid of retribution, as we know we've seen in all of these, you know, cases that it, that's taken so long for this to even come together because so many people were afraid to come forward. So I do see that angle as well. And to be candid, I'm not totally sure where I land. I admire and, and applaud Sam for, for feeling as passionately as he does, and he's fully validated and deserves to feel that way. But I do see the union president's point of how they put this together was to protect the anonymity of the people that came forward. So TBD, I'm not, I, I'm used to having really strong opinions and feelings about stuff, and I'm sure I will about this one, but it's so new that I haven't figured yeah. out exactly where I land yet. And finally, because we got to get back to the other two-minute drill stories, really yeah. quick, really quickly, I noticed that you were at the Saturday Night Live taping uh, last weekend. What was, it, sure was. what was it like when Jake Gyllenhaal came out in that skit? It was wild. Um, we, you know, it, we'll have to get into this in another episode because I just really think it's fantastic. But, um, yeah, so basically there's, you kind of see people coming and waiting in the wings and then slowly kind of skirting into the shot when it's time. But Jake legitimately came out of nowhere. The entire audience was surprised um, because Jake's got, you know, a bit more of a musical bend than we've ever really given him credit for. And he's starting to show that a little bit more. It was, it was nothing but perfect. It was like, it was a chef's kiss to see him come out on wires and go flying. When I was watching, I could I could not believe that that skit was happening. I was like, who thought of this thing? It was so John brilliant. John Mulaney. Yeah, I know. John Mulaney's <laughs> a big musical theater buff, so that's a, that's a, that's a thing that he, he likes to do. The lobster sketch they put on just under two years ago, that was something when he was a writer on SNL that he had been trying to get on for, like, years. And, and then the finally bo- did bodega, bodega bathroom. Bathrooms. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I rewatched yesterday as a... As a counterpoint. Ashley Hardgrave calling in to the show. Thanks so much. You guys are the best. See you soon. All right. Ciao. So, well, we don't have to talk about the David Daniels thing anymore because that's basically the same topic. I, I, I can't. Surprise. I just, more people knew. I just can't. I, all I will say, Sam Schultz, that man has had a complex, unusual life. And did it just get more complex should, and unusual? What? Oh, we totally should have him on yeah, the show. If you're um, listening. So Eric Owens backing out of the ring cycle is kind of a blow to a huge, lyrics yeah, production. It's a huge blow. They've kind of been building up this this ring for the past three years. Yeah. Uh, and it's really with him as this Tim and, and Christine Gerke as the stars of it. But it's giving some opportunities to people. Um, so Brian Mulligan is going to be taking over the Rheingold Votan. And then Alan Held will be taking over the Siegfried and... Um, uh, Valkyrie. It's it's true, but it, I mean, again, the disappointment. Like Lyric's yeah. job is not to give opportunities to people; yeah. it's to do like brilliant work. Right. And and there's no question that with him dropping out, I mean, for the if it was just like one of the four, you'd I, I think I could get over it. But for the whole ring cycle, not to have Eric Owens. No. I'm sure there's not many even, people out there who are more disappointed than Eric Owens yeah. himself. You know, that's not absolutely something that you, true. That, that you work on without putting a significant he amount of He does not seem to be years. one of those singers yeah. who kind of cancels at a whim, and God knows we've run through many of those on the disabled list in the past. It seems like he would, he would do everything in his power 
Okay, so I called it. Uh, Denise Belez was one of the winners of the Met Council editions. Sadly, Whitney Morrison doesn't seem to be on this list. But, <laughs> it's but true. I do you were wa- one for two, Oliver. Yeah. I want to acknowledge five hundred. I want to acknowledge the finals because just to get to the last nine <laughs> that compete uh, in that big concert is a big deal. So shout out to Lindsay Kate Brown, uh, Chasidi Lachey, Jane, uh, Jana McIntyre, and Xiaoming Zhang. Uh, they each get ten thousand dollars for Which is not nothing. Yeah, that's that's okay. You know, pay for some voice lessons and your plane ticket, and hopefully you don't get the coronavirus. You know, while you're out there. How thrilled am I that back in my home state of Michigan, up in Traverse City, which is in the northwest corner of the mitt, if you look at your hand with the thumb on the right-hand side of your body, that's what the state of Michigan looks like. Obviously, the Michael Moore Film Festival is hugely famous. It's got theater companies, choral ensembles. It's near the Interlochen Center for the Arts, and now it has its own opera company. I think that's rad. Sign me up. Maybe we should make a pilgrimage this summer. So it's beautiful up there. Cherries oh, and vineyards. Fruit for days. And, I love yeah. the fruit from Michigan. Okay, so Yuja Wang, she's not an opera singer, but I just wanted to I bring this story into our oh, this two is minute drill. Yeah. Because Wait uh, a second, this was from Slip Disc, Oliver. No, this I, is I, a, this, this is, is my, a specific critique of Slip Disc. Yeah, you didn't read it well. <laughs> so um this is the reason the I reason why I put this it. in is because don't click on anything from Slip Disc. So Slip Disc <laughs> Uh, amplified some woman's, I guess she was a composer, uh, a conductor, and she was at a concert that Yuja Wang was playing, and Yuja Wang came on stage wearing sunglasses. And so this person in the audience wrote this blog post and slip disc amplified it. And I see what you're so saying. So that's why okay. I was saying don't, okay. don't give slip disc the pleasure of... Uh, your clicks. And there's a very weird you know, pastime in classical music of picking on Yuja Wang for yeah. really no reason. Other than that, she's an exciting, dynamic, young. Well, I mean, the thing people say that she is drawing unnecessary attention. She's a great pianist, right? Yeah. But she draws attention to herself because she dresses like for her body type, and she wears clothes that fit her amazing. And she's a gorgeous woman. And um, yeah, I mean, that's attention getting. And sometimes her dresses don't look like what other concert pianists wear, you know. But so she came out on stage. Uh, for this particular concert in Vancouver, she was wearing sunglasses. And the reason why she was wearing sunglasses is because she got stuck at, like, customs at the airport. And they, like, interrogated her. And she was crying. And she almost didn't want to perform. But she's, you know, I, I should go and right. play this concert anyway. It's not the audience's fault that this happened. Yeah. So she just wore sunglasses so that she could cover her swollen eyes. Yeah. I mean, she's playing from memory anyway, right? So it's not like she needs to see the music. Yeah. You know, look, if you're going to be the center of attention, be the center of attention. And, like, wear what you need to wear and which you want to wear and frankly go screw everybody else and you have to practice by the way to get to the level that she's at so Thank give you. her credit for her work you absolutely a couple of corrections practice. last week um orfeo was not the first opera this is the, this is debatable it, it's you the wrote... first opera that we have re- Thank record you. of Thank what about I, I knew daphne you and I were is the gonna... first is the earliest one that yeah, we know i knew existed. oliver and i were going to come to blows on what this. about it is Perry's known as Eurydice. is does it exist has it been yeah. Like in modern notation? I'm pretty sure it has. I know it's before before the Monteverdi, right? The Perry, Eurydice? It, it is. But Orfeo is definitely. Okay. Orfeo well, the is, point is that Orfeo is not. The beginning not, of modern opera. Orfeo was not the first opera, though. It we is can agree on that. That is absolutely true. Okay. Uh, that is a very technical 
definition. No, I'm with I'm with Oliver that Orfeo was not the first <laughs> okay. opera. It is in any like intro to Western music class, it will be discussed as the first opera, though, because it's the one. It's the first one that we actually know a lot about. Exactly, but it's not the first one that existed. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so um, the other thing I wanted to talk about was um, that thing that you guys are trying to describe that when you cut like then that commercial i guess this the swedish opera company it's a cloche it's called a cloche that like little oh, dome right. that goes on top of food when you hide it you know like to keep it oh, warm you know yeah so that was a word that i mean i'm always speaking in rambling sentences so i'm not trying to criticize anybody's like vocabulary no. but that's no, the i word. know exactly what you're okay. talking about oliver okay. it's this it's the same yeah, shape it looks like a bell or something like that the, so. um, it's what it means as in the fact. french okay. <laughs> when they when they bake that style of bread like a boule or something they bake it in a ceramic version okay. of the cloche I know anyway that was a word that about. didn't come to mind last week somehow i wasn't there and then finally how come nobody recommended comedies to our listener mailbag you know she was talking about or they were talking yeah. about you know, operas that don't, uh, you know, victimize women and, and celebrate, you know, suffering and stuff like that. Like, I was actually having a, co- a conversation with a friend of mine about this, about Barber of Seville in particular, because the way if, if you read it in some ways, Barber of Seville is the, the story of a woman who runs circles around every man who tries to control her. Yeah. But the fact that they're making a comedy around the fact that she's being forced to marry this old yeah. man that she doesn't love... That, you know, she pointed that out to me, and I, I had to concede that she, yeah. you know, she's right. That is not a natural... Uh, that that is not a natural environment for comedy to grow from, and it, and it does. But but the fact that that's the setup, the premise of the comedy, yeah. is definitely dated, and and you know people are right to object to that. Well, I put forth Albert Herring as an opera that is a great, it's a masterpiece, great music, and is not about women suffering. That's a that is that going to be your good call <laughs> as we wrap no, up the show? I have a different good call. Good call, bad call on opera box score. Thanks for hanging out with us tonight on Opera Box. Well, what is your good call, Oliver? So you have one opportunity to see uh, the Agrippina in HD. The encore is on Wednesday the 4th. It was great. David McGregor production. I was going to be skeptical about it, but I loved it. Um, the, it's cast perfectly. Uh, Nicholas Tamanya as Narciso. Um, Justin Davies steals the show in, in his lament as um, Otone. Uh, the Popeye is Brenda Ray. She could sing circles around everybody. Joyce Donato is amazing in the show. And Kate Lindsay is a dude. She is so good as a dude. It was awesome. She reminded me of Kieran Culkin's character from Succession. Okay. My good call is just to be back with you all, finally. Aww. That's very nice of you. I had a weird dream the other night that David McVicker was my son's godfather. And then I just I woke up and I started laughing because I couldn't imagine David McVicker around a child. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. The general managers at WNUR are Henry Muskell and Somal Songvi. Our announcers, Norm Waddell at VoxerShorts.com. V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Theme song, Vodka Inferno, is written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra with opera statistics and on this day content from OperaBase.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment. On our posts on Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. Get the podcast version of our show wherever you get your pods. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For Matt Cummings and our guests, Kirsten Cairns and Matthew DiBattista, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera as we celebrate Pulaski Day here in Chicago. Just look it up, people. We're back next Monday, March 9, 9 p.m. Central, when we go inside the huddle with Minnesota Opera's chief artistic executive, Priti Gandhi. Plus, more opera news, more hot takes, more spring fever, 
join us. This is WNUR 89.3 FM HD1 Evanston, Chicago, Chicago Sound Experiments.